Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember, as always, to go check out the website, rate the show five stars, and give the show a follow. It really does help. And thank you to those of you who have donated. It really does go a long way. Look, I'll be honest, I'll get right to the point. There was another long break in between episodes. And for that, as I always do, I apologize. In full transparency, I've had a much larger than usual workload. And on top of that, let's just say I've been dealing with some personal life issues. Haven't been that fun, so alas. While you can all only hear my voice, whether that be in your headphones, Sono system, or in the car on the way to work or whatnot, truly, thank you for listening to the show and being a part of this family, though I've never seen a single one of your faces. But let's be honest, this show is not the history of Eric's personal life. It is, after all, the history of China. So with that, let's just get to why we're all here. Last time, we reached the peak, more or less, of the Eastern Han. And now, we embark on a long, slow decline. No one knew it then, and it's something we can only see with retrospect. But alas, we have that retrospect. So, let's just shake off this bad jujus and let's just get right into it. Without further ado, The History of China, Episode 54, Coups, Historians, and Rome. The seeds of destruction were sown in the last few episodes, but one seed would nearly immediately start germinating and growing into a parasitic vine. Yeah, I work in agriculture after all, but that seed was the one of the changed empress power structure. It's these issues of empress and empress dowager power holding changes that immediately rears its head for Emperor He, who, by the way, welcome, is the new emperor. Remember, metaphorically, we have reached the top of the roller coaster, and we are about to start going down, but not that fast. But that is not in all because Emperor He is pushing the roller coaster over the edge. I mean, he's not really stopping it, but he is as strapped in and powerless to stop the ride as we are. What do I mean? Well, from the get-go, Emperor He did not exactly have authority. All the power really lay in the hands of the Empress Dowager, Empress Dowager Do, who in practice meant power was also brokered and shared through her brothers, including Do Xian, who we've met already, amongst a bunch of others. This is where, though, we all need to use some nuance. The Dou clan was not some far Bolshevik or nationalist socialist party that was seizing power for destructive or revolutionary means. No. While they ended up screwing the dynasty up pretty bad, they were really just trying to better themselves. And they were by no means the first or even the 100th clan to try this in our story up until this point, and they are certainly not going to be the last. So don't view them all as evil, per se. View them instead about how you would view unqualified people who are in positions of power defending each other. It's bad, but it's not necessarily evil. 
I mean, according to the histories, one of the brothers, Do Gui, G-U-I, was actually a really nice guy and allegedly pretty capable. It was the other brothers, though, where trouble began to crop up. Remember, they are not trying to ruin the dynasty or change policy in meaningful ways in directions they want on a deep political level. No. No, they would just, with their sister the Empress Dowager Do, push out officials who challenge their newfound authority and power and wealth. They were self-serving, not politically-minded agitators like a Lenin. But these systems of self-indulgent power structures cannot last. You can't have a self-serving family dynamic circumventing the emperor with no policy ability and expect good things to end up happening. Backstabbing and suspicion would immediately crop up within the inner workings of the Doe clan themselves. For example, in the year 88, I think everyone had the rude awakening that they did not have total political immunity. To cut to the chase, Do Xian, the brother we've already met who's a little more out there, well, he was just flagrantly flaunting the law. Eventually, like Icarus though, he flew a bit too close to the sun and broke the law so egregiously that even the Empress Dowager saw this as an issue and even allegedly was leaning towards wanting her own brother executed. What was the crime? Simple. Do Xian was getting jealous that a man named Liu Chang, who was the Marquess of Du Xiang, uh, thus was not part of the Do clan, well, he was jealous that he was slowly winning over the Empress Dowager's ear, who at this point was essentially the emperor in all but name. It's a bit of a reductive simplification, but more or less, that's what's happening. So that presents an issue to Do Xian, as he in turn loses the influence this Liu Chang guy gains. Every bit this guy gains, Do Xian is losing. And this is just why family affairs like this are messy and don't often work. Because Liu Chang was there because he was smart and he was capable. Do Xian was there because of his name and who he was in terms of of being the Empress Dowager's brother. So obviously, to run the state, the acting leader should and usually does heed the advice of the best and brightest. I told you the crime was egregious, because in 88, Do Xian had Liu Chang assassinated. Yeah, it just shows you how brazen things had gotten. Now, Do Xian tried to frame it so it seemed that Liu Chang was killed by his brother, maybe. But the plan to frame it that way was not that well put together. And thankfully, there were still judges and officials in the dynasty that stuck to the law and were not afraid of doing their job properly. Investigation ensues, and of course, it's obvious to them what really happened. Do Xian is arrested shortly after, and then we are all caught up to his sister wanting to execute him. The bad guys don't always lose, though. In jail, Do Xian pleaded that he lead an army against the northern Xiongnu to, I guess, atone for his sins? And for some reason, he was given the chance. He just assassinated a high-up government official with literally no reason, and now he's being given an army 
to go prove himself and earn back his trust. Yeesh. But alas, in 89, he marches up north and utterly eviscerates the northern Xiongnu. It's a fantastic military victory, and not only has he now atoned for whatever crime he did, he's actually better off than he was before he was arrested. He lets this all get to his head, learns nothing of his crime and potential punishment, and just becomes more brazen. And in 91, adding fuel to this fire, he went north again and beat the northern Xiongnu again. And it's here that the northern Xiongnu stop existing as a cohesive political entity. Do Xian was a war hero. He had all the power he could ever want, and the government would pay for that. If you were not on board with Do Xian, you were either removed from your office at best, or at worst, you were killed. So where the heck is the emperor? Is he locked away somewhere? No, he's not. In 92, Emperor He and his non-Dou clan advisors decided that they had to do something to get control of this situation. What happens next, though, is full of unknowns, as there are serious facts and events that are debated to this day with tons of, I mean, straight-up contradictory information about actions, events, motives, etc., but we don't shy away from that here on the history of China. Let's sift through what allegedly happened. The traditional ancient histories allege that members of the Dou clan and their relatives were plotting to kill the emperor. Now, it is alleged in these histories that the Empress Dowager and the brothers in the palace, you know, the Dou Shens of the world, were not directly in on this. So that's a little foggy. But what's also foggy is what got Emperor He mobilized. I mean, where has he even been? Some histories assert, though again, it's not entirely clear, but it is likely that the eunuch Zheng Zhong and the emperor's half-brother, Prince Qing, were there encouraging action and supporting the emperor in that action. The traditional accounts here, though, don't make a whole lot of sense as modern historians have cast a lot of doubt on the theory that some distant relatives in the Dou clan were plotting to assassinate the emperor on the grounds that, well, there's really no motive for them to do this at all. Why would they have any axe to grind? It would just jeopardize their own elevated positions. Regardless, though, Emperor He, allegedly fearful of being murdered, planned along with the eunuch Zheng Zhong and his half-brother Liu Qing who's actually his full brother, to destroy the Do's power. They received some help in the form of historical accounts that would inspire them as to what to do. They did their research, long story short. And they also got help from another one of the brothers of the emperor. They were people in his corner. In the summer of 92, like the final scene in the first Godfather movie, Emperor He makes an extremely quick, widespread, and coordinated move. You know, the scene where Michael Corleone is at the baptism while all of his enemies are taken out at once in this big, complicated plan? Emperor He is Michael Corleone here. But obviously, Emperor He was real, 
in a thousand times more baller. And that's reductive, but bear with me here. Emperor He orders the guards at the gates of Luoyang, which is of course the capital, to shut the city down. No one in, no one out. The relatives that were allegedly plotting to kill the emperor were immediately picked up and then summarily executed. Meanwhile, a messenger went and seized the official seal Dou Xian had been using as the commander of the armed forces. Boom, boom, boom. Huge moves. But it's not done yet. Emperor He then quickly sends all of the Empress Dowager's brothers back to their march, obviously under armed escorts making sure that they made it intact. But he knows that he can't just execute these brothers. Because you can't just execute prominent people, related to the Empress Dowager no less, because that would potentially be a very bad look. So once the brothers make it back to their march, they were quietly forced to commit suicide. No choice, but it's quiet and out of the public eye. Boom. I mean, just like that. One fell swoop, and Emperor He had, in all honesty, out of nowhere, seized the dynasty back. And to note, and I will note this, that Dou Gui, the capable and humble brother that we mentioned earlier, was spared. He wasn't killed or forced to commit suicide. So, Emperor He was an accurate and calculated actor. Or, again, and I should specify this more in this podcast, he was an accurate and calculated actor in what his own histories say he is. So, yeah. But how about that? What a story. And while sifting through the truth of the motives and the reasonings, what we do know for sure is that in a quick move, the does are ousted. In a coup. Ah, you see where the title came from, right? Don't worry, there's more. But anyway... What was made up by the emperor's historians to paint him in the best and most justified light possible, and what was true and what was not, etc., will never be known. But we know the result. The does are gone. I might have sandbagged this era of the Han Dynasty, because this isn't even the only important thing to happen here under Emperor He and the Eastern Han. And while I keep saying that we've passed the peak... There is not going to just be one big event, then a run of bad things after that. The dynasty does not just collapse this decade, or even in the next, and not even in the one after that. Things instead, as I have said, slowly, ever so slowly, slip away. So now we have passed the peak, but don't be surprised when impressive things still happen. Anyway, Emperor He keeps the Empress Dowager alive, but he makes her essentially entirely powerless. And it appears, and this is an important thing, but it appears he never was really sure if she was his actual birth mother, which we know she wasn't. She was not. However, it is actually clear from most of the histories that during her life, Emperor He was actually not aware that he was adopted and that his half-brother, the one that has been at his side, is actually his full biological brother. But eventually she does die, but we'll get to that when we get to it. Now in the aftermath of the ousting or the coup of the Dos, 
Prince Ching, his actual full brother, and the eunuch Zheng Zhong became trusted advisors. I mean, as one would expect, you just helped seize the dynasty back, you've proven your loyalty. But as one would not expect, or at least in this era, I mean, I mean, look, I don't know how much you listeners think about eunuchs' political positions in ancient China, but if you do, okay, and if you don't, you're probably a more on the normal side, but regardless, Zheng Zhong would mark another change in the status quo for the Eastern Han, as from now till the end of the Eastern Han. Having eunuchs in extremely high positions of power and government authority on an official standing became the norm. Now, all officials who were either complicit or aiding in the Doe's little short-lived political takeover were, of course, rounded up and removed from their post. But this was not going to be a purge in the Soviet sense with gulags and gun squads. This was just more of a private equity house cleaning. But there was one important person removed from their post that I want to take a quick tangent on. We spent about a whole half episode on Sima Chen a while back. You know, the famed historian who wrote Records of the Grand Historian, one of the most important works that we have cited in this podcast so far. Yeah, but it's time to pivot for a second to see the end of the career of another, arguably more influential historian. Born in the year 32, Ban Gu, B-A-N-G-U, would be removed from his post as a high-ranking literary officer with Dou Xian in the year 92, where he would shortly thereafter die in prison. But there is so much more to him than just that. Because as you probably realize, we have stopped citing Sima Qian's records of the Grand Historian, well, because he's dead and couldn't add to it, and instead, we have started citing the Book of Han. The Book of Han, or Han Shu, which directly translates to Han Book, has become one of the quintessential ancient Chinese history sources, not just for the facts and stories it tells, but also in its style and structure. Yes, obviously, Ban Gu is a huge part of this book. I mean, I've put the pieces in front of you guys, but yeah. But the book was not started by Ban Gu. Instead, it was initially started by his father. And Bangu's career did not start off in an obvious direction, even to himself. He did not simply end up taking up work for the government early. Instead, while he was still a young professional, he simply stayed at his family's home, working on his father's work on the Western Han, which was more or less the sequel to Sima Qian's work. And I want to take a step back, and this is going to sound like a rant, but, well, yeah, it is. But I just cannot fathom the fact that someone would take it upon themselves to sit down and write the quintessential history of an event. I mean, imagine living today and knowing, well, maybe not many people have written a cohesive history of World War II. I mean, you've heard it from your grandparents. You've heard it from your great-grandparents. But there's no one history written down about it. There's not even a lot. There's virtually none. They're all scattered around with individual events. These people at this time, in an age of very limited information, are what bring light to an otherwise incredible civilization. But history, and especially history writing, is a tricky thing. 
blending objective facts with more subjective things like personalities, memories and recollections, and motives mean it has always been and always will be controversial in some way or another. Even today, two people in the same town can see the same event in totally different lights. And Ban Gu found this out in year 60, when Emperor Ming of Han was given a report by his officials that accused this Ban Gu guy of, quote, privately revising the national history, end quote. This is bad for Ban Gu, because if true, and Ban Gu is writing out something that goes against any story or narrative the imperial palace was trying to say, true or otherwise, that is not good especially because of how it may look if Bangu talks about the end of the Western Han and the beginnings of the new Eastern Han, which was still solidifying its own legitimacy, in a way that doesn't fit their needed narrative, you can see how that's a weapon. That's a virus. And Emperor Ming was going to stamp this out. So Bangu, of course, is arrested. It is still the ancient world. And his family's library was confiscated. And the latter is something we don't really resonate with anymore. Okay, they took his books. Okay, ooh, so what? But think about it. Having extensive records and books in a time where everything had to be copied and handwritten means that those records and books had extreme value and were incredibly rare. So confiscating them was an enormous deal. Not to bore you guys, but long story short, Bangu's brother gets him out of prison with some political craftsmanship, and Bangu is told he is now to compile the histories and annals of Emperor Guangwu, who obviously is the founder of the Eastern Han Dynasty. And, of course, we love him on this show. Bangu's book, the Book of Han, is still remembered today, so you know how this ends. So therefore, it is no surprise that the work he does for Emperor Ming on Emperor Guangwu is so well done that Emperor Ming in 66 changes his mind and permits Banggu to continue his work on the old Western Han histories. And from there on out, for the rest of his life, he would work on the Han Shu, the Book of Han, while of course holding various posts until he hitched himself to Doxian, and you know the rest from there. Bangu did not write the entirety of the Han Shu, and we know he didn't even start it either. But he was the vast, vast majority of its writings, and his style and structure and the way he organized the history and the detail, well, it was simply incredible. But after he dies the Han Shu is continuously worked on. And intriguingly for the time, it was from his sister, Ban Zhao, who would add to it after her brother's death. And she, in her own right, would become not only one of the most famous female scholars of this time, but one of the most famous for all of Chinese history. And don't worry, there'll be more on her later. The modern historian Su Mei Ling states that Banggu's written work set a trend for the establishment of geographical sections of historical texts. He breaks down his history by place. 
And this sparked a trend of how they wrote history in ancient China. And now, the fact that modern historians, whether they be from the West or from China, they, the fact that he wrote this in a dynastic framework and they did it from this point is thought to be a direct result of Ban Gu's decision to write the Book of Han in the way he did, the way he wrote it, the way it's a dynastic framework. It's the Qin Dynasty, then it's the Western Han, then there's a transition, and then there's the Eastern Han, and then there's regions of power and influx. I mean, our show goes in that manner. And a lot of that credit is given to Ban Gu for the way he wrote the Book of Han. And it's the only real book of any sizable metric that gets down to us that has this level of depth and, well, breadth. And it is with the Ban family where we will transition back to our main storyline. Because Ban Gu's brother, Ban Chao, and this is the brother who bailed him out of prison, by the way, well, Ban Chao is about to not just play a part in facilitating one of the greatest histories ever written, but he also tries to facilitate a meeting of the two greatest civilizations arguably ever. Because Ban Chao would organize a mission to meet up with this mystery civilization to the West. One that seemed nearly as rich and sophisticated as themselves in the Eastern Han. Yes, Ban Chao was indeed trying to find Rome. That is a good place to leave it. Now, I left you on a cliffhanger there, and I promise there won't be this long of a wait till the next episode. It sounds like I'm going to have a little more free time than I thought I would have for the foreseeable future. Next episode, we will wrap up the reign of Emperor He. Dive into what happens next for the Han, because the Qing rebellions are going to happen again, and it's going to be bad. And obviously, I'm going to wrap up this cliffhanger. And we're going to talk about Rome. Thank you so much for listening. Rate the show five stars. Go to the website. Follow it. Dormroomhistory.com, by the way. And I will see you all next time on the History of China.